0: So welcome everybody to today's meeting. Um, It's a great pleasure to be able to welcome today Dominic Scott, um, who's going to talk to us, as you see, about Plato on imitation and art. Dominic um, began his career in Cambridge where he taught in the philosophy faculty and then moved to Virginia, then to the University of Kent And he's now on a Humboldt Fellowship in Munich before taking a job at Lady Margaret Hall in Oxford, which he will start in October. So he'll be just up the road and having been just down the road and maybe in London a lot. Um, Dominic is the author of several books um, and he is a great expert on Plato. He wrote firstly about Plato's theory of recollection then about the Mino and subsequently about Plato and Aristotle so a big range of things here and today um, we're lucky enough to hear him talk about Plato on poetry so thank you very much Dominic and uh, looking forward to this Thank
1: you. well thank you very much um, and for inviting me uh, should start by saying something about how my interest in this uh, topic arose. Um, at a number of points Plato talks about poets as being divinely inspired and he does this in an early dialogue, the Ion, um in the Mino, probably also fairly early, in the Phaedrus and in his last work, The Laws. And I've always been very puzzled by this and Many people have been puzzled that is Plato really serious when he says poets are divinely inspired? Because as we'll be seeing in Republic 10, he is fairly scathing in his criticisms of poets. And there's been a great controversy over whether Plato's claim that the poets are inspired is meant just as a joke, is ironic, or whether he's in earnest. Um, And this this debate goes right back to Goethe, possibly earlier than that. Goethe thought Plato can't be serious about this. Um, And as I was looking into this, I I was very puzzled, because I thought, yeah, well, perhaps Plato is joking in the Ion, but in The Laws, The the Laws is not known as Plato's most humorous work, um, but he does seem to believe that poets are divinely inspired. So I just started looking at Plato's views about poets, and, of course, then you get into Republic... Um, books 2, 3, and 10. And as I was getting into Republic 10, I felt I just don't understand what's going on here until I get to grips with what sounds like a very boring topic, the method he's using. Um, So having started with this uh, rather exotic topic about the divine inspiration of poets, I ended up beaming in on um, this rather different topic, the method at work in book 10. So that's what I'll be focusing on today. And um, I'll lay out the topic quite uh, simply to begin with. In Republic Ten, Plato announces um, that he's going to ban uh, all poets like um, Homer, the tragic poets, and comic poets. Almost nothing is going to be left in his ideal state apart from a few hymns to the gods. This is one of the most notorious and some would say depressing passages in all of Plato. Um, And not only that, many people have thought the arguments he uses are uh, bad. And one of the bad things about them is uh, the way he seems to make certain claims about one form of mimesis, or imitation, painting, and then just transfer them to poetry. So he'll give you a few pages of analysis about painting, what it is, um, the extent to which painters know about the objects they imitate. And then he seems to take those claims and just apply them wholesale to poetry. And that seems to some people like a terrible way of arguing. They talk about Plato making a forced assimilation um, of poetry to painting, that's Annus's terms, or him sliding from painting to poetry. And this happens throughout the passage. So if that's how the argument is working, um, it is um, not likely to be a very good piece of argument. Uh, so what I wanted to do is just to pin down in more detail how Plato's argument actually works. Um, he does indeed start talking about painting and then move to poetry. But exactly how is he applying this parallel? That's really my... Um, focus. Um, Now uh, I should say that uh, this talk started out life as a um, lecture to the Institute of Classical Studies here in London, Um, so I hope no one from there is present. Um, It then uh, had a little uh, visit to Oxford then to Trinity Dublin and now it's come back to London and I have found audiences have a very different uh, reaction Uh, if I start attacking Plato's, uh, like this happened in Oxford, they all started defending him. Uh, then the next time round I start defending him, they start attacking him. So I, I really don't know. have no um, expectations as to what's going to happen tonight. Um, so I'll just try and, I'll try and be balanced. So to set the topic up, uh, let me give you my little overview of the passage of, of the Critique of the Arts. So at the beginning, uh, Socrates says, well, we've already talked about poetry, but I'm now going to return to the topic. We're almost at the end of the work. And he says, in the light of our analysis of the soul um, as having different parts, we can return to the topic topic of um, poetic imitation and we can vindicate our claim that we should ban such imitation from the ideal state. So this is clearly going to be a critique of poetry. Um, But what actually happens is, it seems to me, there are two main sections of the passage. The first I call the epistemological critique, and the second the psychological critique. In the first one, he wants to knock the poets off their perch, as it were. Apparently the poets were viewed as authorities on the greatest matters, virtue and vice, politics, religion, Um, military strategy, all sorts of things. They were seen as having knowledge and insight into these fields and hence uh, Homer is said to have educated all of Greece. In the first part of this passage Plato wants to show that the poets have no knowledge of the topics they talk about. Worse than that they don't even have true belief. So that's part one. But part two is um, a passage which says that poetry actually corrupts the soul. It works on the inferior, non-rational parts of the soul and over time um, destroys the rational part. Right. And uh, it does this even to people who have decent characters. So that's, um, uh, that section of the uh, critique looks at the psychological effects of poetry, And that fulfills the promise right at the beginning of the passage to talk about the damage uh, poetry does to the soul. But just to highlight this, the passage begins by saying, I'm going to talk about the damage poetry does to the soul. But actually, before he gets to that, he has this long epistemological critique uh, claiming that poets have no authority. They have no knowledge, not even true belief. So I divide the passage broadly into two. Um, And I'll start with what I call the epistemological critique, and that passage itself has two components. The first says the poets have no knowledge of virtue, vice, and so on, whatever they uh, profess to talk about. The second says they don't even have true belief. Now in order to launch this epistemological critique, uh, Plato starts in a way that we might not be surprised by, by saying we need a definition of mimesis, of imitation. What is this thing? Um, And on the handout, um, this uh, takes up um, really sections one and two. And this is where the parallel with painting appears. Because what Socrates does is to say, well, we want to um, get a definition or find out um, the, like, the essence of um, mimesis, or imitation. So before turning to poetry, he turns to painting. Right. And here, in one of the most uh, notorious passages in all of Plato, he gives this very interesting account of painting as being um, as what he calls three removes from reality. So he seems to bring back the theory of forms from the central books of the Republic. So he gives examples. He says, let's take the example of a bed or a table. He says, there'll be the form of bed, and then there'll be the particular bed that the craftsman makes, and then the painter makes an imitation of the particular bed. And in this passage, he actually goes as far as to say that God makes the forms, the craftsman makes the particulars, And then the painter makes the imitation of the particulars. So the thing that the painter makes, uh, the the painting, is, well, Plato says at three removes from reality. That's inclusive counting, we might say, at two removes. Um, Now, this passage is notorious, um, partly because we suddenly got forms of beds and tables, whereas up to now we've only had forms of wonderful things like justice, beauty, goodness, and so on. Um, and it may be surprising that Plato's extended the range of forms Um, in the Parmenides later on when Socrates introduces the theory of forms and he's in in front of the older Parmenides Parmenides says well you want forms of the good and beauty and Socrates says yes, do you want a form of man or fire or water and Socrates says oh I'm not sure about that so at least later on in Plato this was a a question mark, but here in a republic we have forms of artefacts. It's also strange that God is making the forms. Um, they were meant to be eternal and ungenerated before. But I'm going to ignore all these problems because my subject is method. Right. Um, so what he's saying so far is that the uh, painter um, is someone who creates a, a, an object that, as he says, three removed from reality. Now, um, on my handout in section 2, I've put um, uh, 597E, a very important thing happens from the methodological point of view. Socrates suddenly talks as if he has not only given us an account of painting, but as if he's given us an account of mimesis as such, which he had always um, been promising to do. So I'll read out this this quote. Very good, said I. The producer of the product three removes from nature you call the imitator, by all means. This then will apply to the maker of tragedies also, if he is an imitator. He is in his nature three removes from the king and truth, as from the forms, um, as are all other imitators. It would seem so, says uh, Glaucon, the interlocutor. We are in agreement, then, about the imitator. Now, what's striking about this little quote is that suddenly Socrates thinks he's told us something about imitation as such, not just about painting. Um, So he thinks that he's, because he's told us something about imitation as such, he's told us something about poetry as well as painting. And if you were looking for passages that uh, provoke the ire of the uh, commentators, this is one of them, right? Uh, an unjustified slide from painting to poetry. See, some of the um, commentators. Um, so this is indeed, a, I would say, a vulnerable moment in the argument. But what my paper wants to do is to try and pin down exactly what is happening here. Right. Um, now I do not think Socrates is just saying, "Oh well, because painting is like this, poetry is as well." I mean that would be a weak move. I think he's focused on this idea of finding a definition of mimesis, of imitation. So what he's done um, is to leave on one side the original object of our interest, namely poetry, and look at the other main species of mimesis, namely painting, and inspect that, and from that try and extract a definition of mimesis as such. So what he's done is to look at um, painting, and say painting involves creating something that is an imitation of something that is itself an image of the form, i.e. it's uh, three removes from reality. Um, And he's made that claim about painting, and now he is assuming that that's not just true of painting qua painting, it's true of painting qua mimesis this feature falls out of the definition of mimesis as such, and that's why it applies to painting. Now that's still an awful lot uh, for him just to assert, um, and I'm not defending that, but I think that is what's going on. So he started with uh, painting, he moved up from that, extracted a definition of uh, mimesis, and then he moves down to apply that to poetry because it's assumed that poetry is a form of mimesis. That was always taken for granted. He's tacitly assuming mimesis, like any form, will have the same definition in all instances. And there's a single genus. right? Um, and so he thinks that he's justified in applying what he said about painting to poetry, because what he said about painting was true of it quay, a form of mimesis. So that, I think, is the method at work. And I'm just going to call it the similarity method, for want of a better term. If someone's got a better um, term at the end of this, please uh, suggest it to me. Um, there are two points of interest here. Um, the first is a little detail in the way Glaucon, the interlocutor, reacts when Socrates says, um, "If." Uh, The person who uh, makes something, a product, three removes from nature you call the imitator. This will therefore apply to the maker of tragedies. Glaucon uses a funny Greek word, kindino, kindinue, which means it, it may be probably the case or something, which signals hesitation, I think. Now, that may not mean anything, but it may be that Plato is, as he often does, writing something into the interlocutor's reply which is meant to alert the reader. Don't take this for granted. Um, So that's just a small point of detail. The bigger point I wanted to make is that the method here should be familiar to any reader of the Republic when you think back to the beginning of the Republic or at least book two, um, the state-soul parallel. Because at the beginning of the Republic, they um, were faced with a question about the value of justice. And I think it was the value of justice in in the individual. Why should I, as an individual, be just to other people? And Socrates, at the beginning of Book 2, after the unpleasant bust-up with Thrasymachus, had returned to the question, I think, in a much more methodical way. He says, well, first of all, before we ask about the value of justice, we must understand what it is. And he says, well, to understand what it is, we will actually look at justice in another instance, the state, we'll try and define it there, and then we will take that different definition and apply it to the individual. Right. So I think he's actually up to this, the same tricks here. Um, uh, we are interested in the value of poetic mimesis. Is it such a great thing we should allow it into our state or not? Well, to settle that question, we must define mimesis a poetic mimesis, but we'll park poetry on one side and look at mimesis in another of its forms, painting, extract a definition, and then use that to return to the question we originally had about poetry. So I think really it is the same method at work here. Right. But I'll leave that for the moment, but come back to it. Right. Because as we look through the passage in Book 10, we find that he starts using. Um, the state all parallel in, in a different way than the way I've talked about so far. So what I've said so far is, is that Plato's looked at the case of painting, moved up from that, extracted a definition of mimesis as such, and then brought that back down to apply to poetry. Uh, you can certainly say, well, hang on, how do we know that his account of the product being at three removes from reality is something true of mimesis as such, not just something true of painting. How do we know that? He has not justified that and I'm not attempting to give him an argument for that. I'm just laying out the method. But let's now just see how the argument goes on. Because so far he's only given us um, a a definition or even a partial definition of mimesis. He's now going to start moving on to the big claim of the first part that the imitators have no knowledge how does this happen well there's on handout on the handout point three there's a brief section where he clarifies in a little more detail what he means by making an imitation and he returns to the painter and he says well look the point about the painter is he just captures the look of an object from a certain angle right. um, you know the painter does not obviously make a bed uh, he, he just uh, shows you how the bed looks from this perspective. So he captures, if you like, some, he calls it some small part of the object, the surface of the object. Right. Um, and he says it's because of this that a painter can actually go around imitating all sorts of things. Earlier he had talked about someone holding a mirror to all these objects who had become, an, who was sort of a maker of all things that's really easy obviously but he says um a painter can in a way is he's more expert than that but he's still only capturing the surface of objects and that's why he's able to copy so many different things um and nonetheless he fools sort of children and idiots into thinking he deceives them into thinking he's some kind of expert into the objects he copies so there are some guys out there and they apparently include children who thinks when a painter does a painting of a chair, he really knows about chairs. Uh, But the rest of us aren't fooled. But the point is, you can imitate all this huge range of things without having any knowledge of the objects because you only capture the surface of the object. So that was all further clarification about painting. And now we move back to poetry. And as you know what's coming, he's going to try and show that similarly, Poets can exhibit their characters in all sorts of situations, if it's tragic poetry, you know, calamitous situations. um, And they can uh, vividly um, portray these characters. And Plato obviously wants to say, without having any knowledge of virtue and vice, or we might say the human condition and so on. So the big question is, for me, Does he do this just by saying, well, that's true of painters. I mean, they can just capture the surface of the object, fool people into thinking that they have expertise. So the same is true of poets. Well, um, I'm now going to read out uh, the bottom of page one, a really important text for my purposes. Um, This is the point where he's just made this claim about poets capturing the surface of the object and being able to imitate without any knowledge. And he says he's now going to turn this question on the poets. So have we not got to scrutinise tragedy in its leader Homer? Since some people tell us that these poets know all the arts and all the things human pertaining to virtue and vice and all things divine. For the good poet, if he is to poetise things rightly, must, they argue, create with knowledge or else be unable to create. So we must consider whether these critics have not fallen in with imitators of this kind and been deceived by them, so that by looking upon their works they cannot perceive that these are at three removes from reality and easy to produce without knowledge of the truth, for it is phantoms or appearances, not realities, that they produce. Or is there something in their claim, and do good poets really know the things about which the many or the multitude fancy they speak well? we must certainly examine the matter now this methodologically is really interesting because far from just applying what he said about painters to poets he raises it as a question he says we've said this about painters we've now got to see whether it's true about poets can they do all this amazing imitating without actually knowing about their subject matter and in the next page or so we get a what some might say is rather strange argument, um, which was uh, anticipated in this earlier dialogue, the Ion, it says, well, look, let's take Homer. So if Homer talks about a battle, and you say, wow, he's just so knowledgeable about it, he, he wouldn't be able to write so vividly about the battle if he didn't have knowledge of military strategy. Or he wouldn't be able to write so knowledgeably, knowledgeably about politics if he didn't know about politics. Um, the argument runs, well, look, if he really knew about military strategy or politics or virtue, um, what would he rather do, just imitate this stuff or go out and do it? I mean, surely he would want to get out there and win a few battles and get his statues all over the, you know, the, um, and get some monuments to him or make some really great cities and laws or leave behind some amazing people. Why would you just sit and draw pictures of it if you could really do it? Um, He didn't do it, nor did Hesiod. Um, Therefore, they didn't actually have any knowledge. Uh, Therefore, they are like the painters. Now, okay, I'm not gonna try and defend that argument, um, but a reference to, uh, I'll outsource that to John Ferrari, who wrote an excellent counter plato on art and has made some sympathetic noises towards it. Um, it's a very interesting argument. I mean, did Tolstoy, what's he, you know, what have these guys done for the world? I don't know, but, um, that's, uh, um, but all I'm interested in is, is, is it, it is an independent argument. It makes no reference to painting at all. It, it stands on its own feet. It's like it's an empirical examination of the worldly success or otherwise of the great poets. Um, so what we have methodologically speaking um, is um, a, a two-stage process. Plato looked at painting to set up a sort of if you like, a hypothesis about the poets, um, or at least to set up a question. Are the poets the kind of people who just capture the, the, the surface without having knowledge, Or do they really have some kind of knowledge? He says, well, here's an independent argument to settle the question. They had no knowledge. Therefore, they must be like the painters. So this method is not like the one I talked about before, the similarity method. There, what Plato did was to say, this is how painting is, because that's how mimesis is. Um, Poetry is another form of mimesis. Therefore, the same is true of poetry. This time, he said, this is what's true of painting. Um, let's get an independent argument to see whether it's true of poetry. So the purpose of the painting parallel was to set up, make vivid in our minds what he hopes to apply to poetry. It clarifies the demonstrandum, but it does not demonstrate it. That's a separate argument. So I call this the heuristic method, and it is quite different from the similarity method. Um, now that immediately raises the question well why doesn't he just use a similarity method in this case Uh, does he think it it just doesn't fall out of the definition of mimesis that you don't need knowledge to imitate Um, well unfortunately I think he he probably did think it falls out of the definition of mimesis. You don't need knowledge because if mimesis is just capturing the surface appearance, if that's what it is by definition, then it would seem to fall out of that. You don't need knowledge of your subject matter to imitate. So I was initially a bit puzzled as to why, you know, given he has already used the similarity method, why not keep going with it? Why switch to the much more cautious heuristic method? And I think the simple answer is, um, this is just too controversial. No one really goes around saying that Van Gogh knew how to make chairs. I mean, we don't go around saying that painters have this authority. He says children and mad people do, uh, make that claim. But when it comes to Homer, I think there are many people and many eminent people who really think he understands the human condition. So Plato needs something stronger than just the similarity method to support it, especially as Plato himself, as I argue, had, through Glaucon, raised some doubts about these of the similarity method. So I think when, when the going gets tough, when things get controversial, um, he's moved over to the heuristic method. I think that's what's happened. Um, so already I'm saying there are actually two methods at work. Um, and we have to understand when one is in operation and when the other, um, uh, and and understand the differences between these two methods. So what I want to do is just keep going through the rest of the Book 10 critique and ask whether one method or the other is at work and why. And in case you want to sort of tune out for a bit, just to give you the um, cut to the conclusion, I think actually the similarity method Really drops out as the argument goes on and the heuristic method uh, takes over. Um, so I'll be brief about the next stage of the argument. Uh, by this point, Socrates thinks he's shown that the poets don't have knowledge of their subject matter. He sort of twists the knife in the wound um, over the page um, on pa- on, in section seven, sorry, in section eight. He twists the knife by saying, not only do the poets not have uh, knowledge, they don't even have true belief. And so this is a fresh argument. And once again, he starts with painting. So you might think uh, we've got the similarity method. And he, the argument in brief goes as follows. He says, um, well, uh, imagine someone painting a horse or painting the reins and the bridle on a horse. Uh, well someone else made those that's the uh, bridal maker or the the reins maker and then someone else actually uses them and he makes this claim that it's actually the user who has knowledge not the maker more specifically he says when it comes to whether something is a a well-made or not it's the user not the maker the maker has to attend to the user and Work under his instructions in order to make properly. So he's subservient to the user. Musical instruments, for another example, flutes. You know, the, it's the flautist who's the expert in whether such and such is a well-made flute, is a good flute, uh, not the flute maker. Right. So um, when the piano makers in the 19th century, they had to follow the li- uh, people like Franz Liszt, who explained to them what is a good piano. Uh, it wasn't the piano maker. I actually find that quite a plausible um, suggestion. And Aristotle, one of the things he likes in Plato is precisely this in the politics. He basically uh, cribs this um, and applies it, as I'll explain a moment, to political life. And Aristotle says, you know, it's the diner, it's the gourmet, uh, not the chef who knows whether a dish is well-made. So if if everything's made for a telos or a goal, um, then you can see why he thinks it's the user of it, not the maker who is the ultimate authority. But anyway, the point is to relegate the maker to the status of true belief. And since we've already put the poor old imitator beneath the level of the maker, um, then that, we, we can't even give the imitator true belief. Right? So he has some worse state. So he says all the imitator can do is to be good at making things appear to his audience to be well made or not. But he doesn't go around uh, taking advice from the user. He doesn't even have true belief. He just has a knack of making things appear good to the audience. Um, Now, uh, although Plato starts talking um, about painting there, he's actually invoking another principle, which is about any object that has a use or a goal or a telos. In that case, it's the user who has um, knowledge, not the maker. And that, although it's illustrated with painting, I don't think the the argument is not based on painting. And he then applies it to poetry. It's not quite clear um, what he means there, and I have a separate paper about that. But I think he means that in the case of poetry, you would have say, the form of virtue or the forms of the virtues, And in the ideal state, the guardians look to those forms, and then they use the actions and the doings, the characters of their citizens to try and blend the state, the polity, into the best shape possible, so that the the legislator or the guardians are like the users of their materials, the the other citizens. And that's actually exactly how Aristotle takes this um, uh, uh, passage, when he uses it in Politics, Book 3, Chapter 4. So in some way, it's meant to apply to um, uh, politics in that way. And then the poet just imitates uh, characters acting and makes them appear to be good or not to um, their audiences. But um, I have to be brief here. But I think the point, the argument here doesn't move just saying uh, this is true in the case of painting, therefore, it's true in the case of poetry. He's saying there's a general principle about whenever something has a telos, um, it's the user of that object or that thing or that person uh, who has knowledge, not the maker. I'm happy to take, uh, if you want to uh, ask in more detail how this argument applies in case of politics and poetry, um, I'm very happy to talk about that um, in the questioning. But again, I think, He merely uses painting like as an illustration, a heuristic device to focus our minds on the point he wants to make about poetry. He doesn't use a similarity method. So let me now turn um, to the second part of the whole passage, the psychological critique of of poetry. Um, I want to show again that although the painting poetry is very active here, it's used purely in a heuristic way, not the similarity way. Um, so this passage begins with a, a very specific question. Socrates says to, to Glaucon, "Okay, so um, with poetry, says what part of the soul or what part of the psyche does the poet target?" And Glaucon says, not, "What do you mean by this?" Right. And the answer is going to be. Uh, In Socrates' view, poets address the non-rational part of us, our emotions. They work on our emotions, not on our reason. And they build up the strength of our emotions, not as Aristotle would say, they don't uh, purge us of our emotions, they build up their power so that eventually our emotions hijack the control of reason. That's the overall shape of the argument. But as before, he starts with painting. He says, well, let me uh, show you what I mean. Uh, you know that there are certain optical illusions like the bent stick in water um, or you could uh, make something seem larger than something else when they're really the same length, something like that. Um, If there was a board, I would do... You know the famous parallel lines illusion where you have arrows? But think of the bent stick in water, easy case. And Socrates says, well, there's a kind of painting, this is like shadow painting or scene painting used by um, in the theatre, which exploits our susceptibility to illusions. So Trompe-Loy painting is a kind of painting that plays on us ability to be taken in by illusions. So he starts in the visual realm, talking about optical illusions and then talks about a kind of painting that exploits these. So here we are back with the painting parallel. And then he has this uh, passage which is Perplexed a lot of scholars, so but I have to um, rush through it rather quickly. But he says that when you have, when you experience an optical illusion, one part of you, you know, knows that the stick is straight, but at the same time, there's a part of you to which it appears bent. I mean that's what's interesting about optical illusions. So there's a conflict there. And then he appeals to an earlier part of the Republic and he said, whenever there's a conflict in the soul, like your believe and don't believe the same thing at the same time, the same respect, uh, there have to be two parts of the soul. Like if you desire something and desire not to have it, there have to be two parts of the soul. It goes back to book four. So he says here there must be one part of the soul, the, the rational calculating measuring part that knows the stick is straight. But there's another non-rational part that believes it's bent. And there's a sort of little battle going on in the soul. And that's what these painters are exploiting. So there's a superior part and an inferior part. And then he says, Well, let's now um, return to poetry. Um, remember, his question was: what part of the soul or the psyche does poetry target? And he's already said, in the case of painting, there's a certain kind of painter, the Trompe-Loe painter, who targets this sort of irrational tendency of us to believe the stick is bent and so. And then um, on page three I've quoted another passage um, he says well look uh, mimetic art is an inferior thing cohabiting with an inferior and engendering inferior offspring um, this is of sexual imagery saying that building on the previous discussion saying that the Trump-Loy artist um, works on this non-rational part of you and the, the, the inf, which is an inferior part. And, of course, the trompe l'oeil artist is an inferior kind of artist, and the result is an inferior offspring, the belief that the thing is bent, right? The false belief. Um, so does this hold not only for vision, or does it also apply to hearing and to what we call poetry? Presumably, um, says Glaucon, to that also. But Socrates now says, let us not just trust solely to plausible analogy from painting, but let us approach in turn also that part of the mind to which my mythic poetry appeals and see whether it is the inferior or nobly serious part. Now, in a way, you couldn't ask for a better signal that I'm not going to use the similarity method anymore, says Socrates. I'm going to use something else, namely the heuristic method. He's saying, well, look, we've seen that something applies to painting. Let's not just assume it applies to poetry. Let's argue that it does. So we have this another very famous argument in which he starts doing some moral psychology. He says, well, in the case of um, tragedy, we're dealing with emotions like grief. Now, in the case of grief, leaving aside um, how it's presented on stage, someone could Experience the loss of a relative and they could feel very powerful grief, but they could believe, because it's a rational thing to believe, that they should restrain their grief. Right. So, certainly in public, they will not sort of break down and all tear up or all the rest of it. They will be very measured and restrained. In private, they can't help it and they'll burst into sobbing and so on, but they wouldn't be seen in that way in public. Right. And later on, he actually starts making some we might almost say very stoic comments, you know, well, um, the the reason or the law, as he puts it, will tell you that, you know, with grief, you've really got to hold it in check because um, human affairs are not that important in the grand scheme of things. Um, We don't know whether this loss is actually a great loss or not. um, And grieving just gets in the way of you moving on with your life. There are all sorts of reasons as to why um, you should restrain your grief. And yet, you want to indulge your grief. And that's um, where... So there are two parts of the soul here, he says. On the one hand, you want to restrain your grief. On the other hand, you want to indulge it. Classic case of conflict must be two elements of the soul. right? A superior and an inferior. That's the moral psychology bit. And then he turns to tragedy. He says, well, the successful tragedy, successful with a... A Athenian audience is precisely the kind of thing that plays on the emotions um, and plays to that inferior part and it builds it up and the result is that that part grows stronger and stronger and eventually destroys the capacity of reason to think or deliberate about what to do in when your own life gets turned upside down um, this is actually a very tricky topic about exactly what he means, but I just want to say very briefly, I'm happy to come back to it in the questions. I think um, he really is talking about the way you know, we experience uh, losses um, and typically, in you know, popular thought, the loss of a relative or the loss of our money or reputation seems a terrible thing, whereas to the philosopher, who would become the Stoic philosopher, these things may even be indifferent. And it's a job of philosophy to measure the worth uh, of these losses. That's something you get earlier in the Protagoras. So it is absolutely vital that you keep your rational capacity um, alive and well, so that it can actually make some judgment as to how great a loss this thing really is. But our emotions, um, really just seem to—it appears to the non-rational part that this is the most awful loss if. If I've been gravely insulted in public to my spirited part, that'll seem like the most terrible loss. Um, So that if all you had was your non-rational part, you would be left unable to measure the objective value of these different losses. That's his point. There's a very close uh, parallel he does make with um, uh, the visual case, but it's made on independent moral and psychological grounds, I think. Um, so I think he's really saying the point of tragedy is that the more you build up these emotions, the m- you bring with that a certain way of viewing values, you know, losses and gains. Right? And the stronger that becomes, the more difficult it is for you just to exercise reason um, in evaluating these losses. So that's the damage that tragedy does. But so returning to the methodolo- methodological point... In my view, uh, and I think it's fairly clear from the text, that Socrates has um, set up a certain model using painting of of these optical illusions about how a certain kind of imitative art can play on our susceptibility to appearance uh, at odds with our ability to measure the correct magnitude. And then the question is, well, is this also true of poetry? And he leaves painting to one side, and he analyzes, first of all, the moral psychology of grief. He's splitting the soul into different parts. And then he talks about the way that tragedy uh, works on the the psyche uh, to build up the the, the non-rational. And hence, he thinks he's vindicated uh, his parallel with poetry. So the last quote on page 3... After this argument, he says, this consideration makes it right for us to proceed to lay hold of um, the poet and set him down as the counterpart of the painter. He resembles him in that his creations are inferior in respect of reality. And the fact that his appeal is to the inferior part of the soul and not to the best part is another point of resemblance. So we may at last say that we should be justified in not admitting him into the ideal state. So this is where I think he's completing the heuristic method um, of saying we've vindicated the parallel. We didn't just rely on the parallel with the similarity method, we vindicated it separately. Um, Now there's a complicated question as to whether he thinks it's part of the definition of mimesis, that it always works on an inferior part of the soul. If that were the case, why didn't he just use a similarity method here? Uh, Maybe I'll come to that in the questioning. But I think the reason he goes for the safer heuristic method is yet again, he's saying something incredibly controversial. Um, Homer uh, merely appeals to the irrational in us, he does not in any way engage the intellect. I mean, surely Homer's supporters would say, well, he can do both. But for Plato, no, he does not engage the intellect. To make that point, he needs more than just uh, uh, the similarity method, hence the heuristic method. Um, I knew I'd start running out of time, so I'm going to have to compress the the last part. Um, What I've tried to show is that the painting-poetry parallel um, masks, if you like, two distinct methods. One is the similarity method, where you try and extract a definition of mimesis by looking at one of its forms, and then you apply it to another of its forms, poetry. Um, But the other method at work uh, is the heuristic method, which is much more cautious. You use painting to show what you intend to demonstrate, but then you demonstrate it by independent means. And actually, for most of the dialogue uh, sorry, of this book, Plato's actually following the more cautious method. But the fact is, he still did follow um, the similarity method earlier on when he was defining mimesis as creating a product at three removes from reality. And so that vulnerability is still there in the argument. Um, I just want to end with something I bunged in a footnote right at the end of the paper because maybe it's uh, more interesting than uh, to be in a footnote. Um, when I was um, talking about uh, Plato's use of the similarity method at the beginning I said how Glaucon said well uh, he was a little cautious about accepting the use of the similarity method and Plato signaled that himself Um, so maybe the point of the similarity method it gives us a tentative uh, inference but perhaps as the argument goes on we can look back on it and give it some more support. So what I might suggest is that um, uh, uh, Plato has tentatively suggested that um, it is part of the essence of mimesis, that it involves creating a product that three removes from reality. Um, that was true of painting and he's suggesting it's also true of poetry because it's a form of mimesis. But if by using a separate argument, he showed that poets, like painters, lack knowledge of their subject matter. We might use that retrospectively to justify our use of the similarity method earlier. Because you could say, well, look, uh, poets, like painters, uh, managed to imitate an awfully wide range of phenomena, human, the human condition in many different aspects. Um, we have shown that they have no knowledge of this, because Homer didn't go around winning battles. Um, So, how is it that poets are able to uh, imitate so convincingly without any knowledge of what they imitate? Well, the best explanation might be they only capture the surface, as it were, of um, what they imitate. Like the painters, i.e. the best explanation is they are themselves just three removes from reality. So we were right all along to make that move earlier, it's just perhaps it was a bit hasty, but I wanted to move the argument along. So Glaucone, well done for being cautious, but in the light of what followed, I think we can vindicate it. Um, so I'm not really going to have time to talk about the, the last bit of my talk, which was comparing the use of the state soul analogy with the painting poetry analogy. But I will just make one point, that when earlier in the Republic... Plato used the state-soul analogy. As I said, he was saying, let's find a definition of justice in the soul by finding it in the state and then applying that to the soul. Um, In my view, Plato did indeed take a definition of justice in the state and apply it to the soul. It was a use of the similarity method. But he said, you know, we've got to be very careful if we find any anomalies or any inconsistencies we've got to be prepared to go back to the drawing board and it did provide supplementary supporting arguments, I won't get into what they are but it was part of the state-soul parallel that although you use a similarity method you also have extra arguments which will retrospectively justify your use of the parallel. So in that way I think the painting poetry parallel um, is similar. so uh, just in, in outline, I've, I've tried to show that uh, there is this parallel in Book 10, the painting poetry parallel. Behind it, there are two distinct methods, what I call the similarity method, which is risky, and then the heuristic method, which is much safer. Um, for the most part, actually, Socrates uses the heuristic method. But even when he did use the similarity method, um, I think retrospectively he has the resources at least to justify that. So as you can see I'm now in my uh, defensive mode on Plato's behalf so I now uh, expect a virulent attack on me. Uh, But I thank you very much for your attention.